Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad that you would join us today, whether you are in person or on our live stream, whether this is your first time with us or you're a recent guest or on the other end of the spectrum, you are intimately familiar with our quirks and the ins and outs of what makes this church a family. We're so glad that you would spend a portion of your weekend here with us. My name is Jed, and it is a privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And Britt says hello. He was out in Miami with his son-in-law, Donnie, and they were cheering on those canes. But my friends, there was some humbling yesterday, a little beat down from Florida State. But either way, uh, Britt will be back next week. And this morning, we are continuing in our series where we are studying through the introductory remarks of the Apostle Peter in his second letter that we have preserved, Second Peter, that was written to first and second generation Christ followers. And there was a unique thing that they were beginning to experience, even though it's not so much unique to what it means to be human. They were experiencing disappointment. They were experiencing uncertainty and angst because the idea, the promise of Jesus' return had not yet happened in their lifetime. And the apostles and these first and second generation Christians were getting older, and they weren't just getting older. People who were within their very movement, these earliest of Christians, were beginning to ask themselves, what? Is happening. Why has he not come back yet? And so we see in some of our older letters this intensity, this urgency of his return. And as the New Testament progresses, we find that these disciples and Christians are grappling with why and what they ought to do. And so we see it in the latter part of this letter in chapter 3, verse 4, where there are scoffers and they're saying, Where's the promise of his coming? Forever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so they're already questioning, what's happening? Scholars would call this the delay of the parousia, Jesus' return. They're unsure. And so this series that we're calling Add to Your Faith and those introductory remarks from the Apostle Peter and what Schuyler read this morning become all the more impactful. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control endurance, and to endurance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Because Peter knows, and these disciples know that it isn't just enough now to have faith and wait. The world is watching, and they're experiencing life Every single day, there's something to be done, effort to be made. 
And as we saw in those final verses that have been read each and every single week, the idea of progressing along in faith in Jesus Christ and His saving grace ought to move us so that we will not just become stuck, which we referenced in that first week, ineffective, unfruitful. We can call it being just discontent or bummed out so that we might not stumble into the entry of His eternal kingdom. And so I'm going to read just a little bit further along from where we have stopped every single week to give us a fuller sense of why Peter writes. And so in verse 12, he says, Therefore, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, though you know them already, and are established in a truth that has come to you. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to refresh your memory. In other words, I'm thankful that Peter acknowledges that you guys already know most of this stuff. And so this morning, I don't know how many of you were excited to hear a message about self-control, but I imagine most of you weren't very excited about that. And if I asked you to raise your hands if you were not excited for this message, you would have to practice some self-restraint because that would probably make me feel a little insecure, but it's not my fault. These are the words that were given to Peter and what he writes to us. And so the task today for us is to consider the role that self-control has in our growth and our development as humans. You guys ready for that? And so every week we have had our note sheets begin with this first statement. If you want a faith that is vibrant and fruitful, then make every effort to add to your faith. Say it with me. Wow, wonderful. I'm going to give you your first several fill-in-the-blanks. Are you ready? When we talk about a progression of self-control, the first fill-in-the-blank that you are going to write is, stop that. And then you can keep writing, this is how most of us were raised. And because this is how most of us were raised, you can continue writing, this is what most of us repeat. Stop that. Now, I know that you're typically accustomed to us and jumping right into the Scripture, and we'll get to that. There's a lot of that this morning, but I need to take a few moments to consider the stop that role for ourselves, and then what it does and how we react to others. And so when we think about ourselves, I would like you to think about the times in your life where you have tried to exercise self-control and what that felt like to operate from a stop that, don't do that place of being. Has anyone experienced that before? Right? The snooze button, stop that, don't hit it. The clickbait, stop that, don't click it. The Ben and Jerry's, stop that, don't empty it. That anxious thought, stop that, don't fret it. All of the things in our lives that we are trying to manage to prevent ourselves from doing because they are almost automatic to us. And something inside of us is calling us to that Ben and Jerry's pint. And I'm speaking from experience here, my friends. I'm not projecting that onto you. That is my struggle. We all have these things that we are trying to get ourselves to do or not to do. That's the self-peace. What about that other part? How does the stop that mentality frame how we treat other people? 
Let me give us a little scenario. I want to imagine for a moment that you are in the wild, okay? You see the jungle around you, and in the wild, you are surrounded by 13 to 15 or so wild creatures. Still with me? Okay, if you haven't picked up on it already, I am describing children's ministry for you. I'm recruiting, if any of you are interested, uh, your children are over there in that place. God bless our children's ministry volunteers. They're so, so faithful. We are always inviting more. But I, I want to say, when you are in a space with little children, something generally happens to you based off of how you were raised. You start to make odd faces and sounds, right? It's like a, uh, oh, okay, oh, oh. Oh, stop, stop. Okay, hey, hey, hey. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? When the little creatures around you are just going about their business being wonderful children, we have it almost automatically. Right? We know what that is like. That is the other's piece. You know, psychologically, we call that a writing reflex a desire to take things that are happening and make them right. And it's understandable because for many of us, and rightfully so, there were dangers and there were things that probably mom and dad or our caretakers or our teachers or our coaches or the people around us were trying to prevent us from doing. And so if they weren't very fast, we might get hurt. But there's an intensity to that that can cause us to be a little bit skittish about when things aren't going the way that we would desire for them to be. Let me pause here and say that when we're talking about self-control, this isn't to diminish the importance of self-restraint. It's not. When we talk about self-control, the Greek word enkratia actually means a lordship over, a power over. And if you and I were good Greek philosophers, this would be one of the greatest virtues for us because we would essentially be communicating, even though there are powers outside of us, we are ultimately the lords, the kings, the ones who are in control of our desires. And so if we do something, it's because we wanted to do it. And if we don't do something, it's because we didn't want to do that. And so for Socrates and Plato in that school of thought, self-control as in a power and lordship over yourself to communicate ultimate freedom and autonomy, that was an ideal. Interestingly, even though you and I know how important discipline and self-restraint are in the New Testament, does anyone want to guess how many times this word appears? Show me with one hand. I will let it down for you. With one hand, show me how many times you believe this word appears in your New Testament. Patricia, two, two, 22, two. Seeing lots of twos? We'll go this. Four. Four times. Four times in your New Testament this word appears. Not because it isn't important, but because the cultural way of understanding self control would have been in contrast to what these early Christians were confessing. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is lordship over ourselves, as uncomfortable as that might be. So I want us to move us along here as we talk about our progression of self 
control, after that stop that mentality, maybe you and I have developed a see that. That's your next fill in the blank. See that? Keep filling in. This is how most of us learn how to critique others. And then if we move further along, this is what most of us learn to conceal about ourselves. Now, I'll explain all of this in a moment. But to get to that, I think often about how when I first started out in vocational and pastoral ministry, so 14 or 15 or so years ago, I was feeling pretty equipped from all the Bible classes, you know, all our theology classes and our care and counseling and all these things that I was going to put into practice. And mind you, I was 19 years old. That is scary. I'm just a little bit older than that now. It's still scary. But at 19 years old, it was really scary because I felt pretty darn confident about the way that I sat across from people. And in fact, for many years, I used a certain type of progression when folks would come to sit across for me, and there are elements of it that I absolutely still use today, but the kicker on the back end is what I'll share that was different. When I would come and have, or someone would come and do coffee with me or sit across my desk in my office, I would ask them why they'd come to visit if I did not know them and there was no small talk, and then I'd proceed to tell them that generally when people come, it's one of three things. It's because someone wants me to tell them something they already believe. It's because someone wants me to say something that perhaps they are too scared to say out loud for themselves, or finally, because they just want to ask. And they really didn't know what they were looking for. At least they did not think. And so after they would share a little bit about why they came, I'd say, okay, I'm really glad that you're here, but can I share with you just two things that are guiding principles for me about how this works? And so they would generally say yes, and then I would take them to this Bible, and I would open up to Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, and I'd say this is a really simple scene when Jesus is beginning his ministry. And he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, or I will make you fishers of people. And I would explain that when Jesus is saying that to these first disciples. It's not because they were literally going to fish for folks, but he was meeting them where they were as fishermen. And if he were doing that to any of us with where we are, he would speak in a way that connected with our way of living and doing. But I would share that the assumption of Jesus saying, follow me, is that as a pastor, I was not telling you sitting across from me that you were going to follow me. I'd tell folks that I really don't have the answers for you, but I am convinced of the fact that if Jesus says to follow him, follow me, something is going to happen with you and I, where we will both learn together. And I would say discipleship is not me to you, but Jesus to us. That was what was communicated each and every single time. And then I would open up my Bible a little bit further and I'll share one more passage of scripture, Romans chapter 8 where it talks about how we know all things work for good for those, who love, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And later on, it would say that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And I would share with these individuals, whether or not they were a Christian or a non-Christian or someone who were interested, that because they came to visit me, 
as someone in pastoral ministry, I was convinced that as uncomfortable as it might be, the goal for all of us would be to be predestined or conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, again, you aren't supposed to become like me. We are called to become like him. And so that sounds pretty okay so far, right? Those are things that I still do to this point. But what happened next is where the see that stuff and my pride as a 19-year-old would come into play. Because I would begin to listen to whatever it is that they were sharing. And I would start asking questions. So perhaps it was a teenager or an adult who was struggling with pornography. Or perhaps it were a parent who were looking at their student wanting to wring out their necks and trying to refrain from that. Or perhaps it was someone in the community who did not feel like they could outrun their past and had these thoughts of shame and guilt over and over and over again. And as I would ask questions to understand more, what I would do is in my mind, I would put two columns down. And I would listen intensely for ways that would communicate one thing and then its contradiction the other. You know what that's like, right? When you are expressing something that you want to change, there are things that sound like, yes, I've got it. And then things that sound like, why would I want to change in the first place? We call that change talk and sustain talk. All human beings have that. But at the time, I did not consider the fact that all human beings had that. I was looking at this person across from me thinking, that is the issue. I was thinking the issue is that they have these contradictory ways of seeing their reality. And so 45 or so minutes into this pastoral counseling session, my transition, my transition sadly, was asking, okay, these are the things that you've said, but can I show you something? Can you see something with me? You said this here, and in the same breath, you would say this. And at one point, you were saying this, and then it wasn't too much longer that you were saying this. And what's really sad about that way is that, for whatever reason, the individual across from me would almost like, yeah, you're, you're right. I am saying these contradictory things. And then from that point forward, we would talk about how whatever their problem was, whatever the addiction or the behavior was, whatever that thing was at the surface, underneath it was really what the problem was. So this was problematic, but it really is a solution to whatever this deeper problem is, right? If, if you're doing this or you're struggling with this, this is really what it is. And again, all those things sound great and wonderful, and there are elements of truth to that. However, if I could go back in time and with what I have amended today, rather than showing people the ways that they are contradictory so as to move them to do something different, I would share from a greater place of compassion and settledness, and ease, because I am like that too. That's who I am. That's who all of us are. Look at the Apostle Paul, and you've probably encountered this before in Romans chapter 7. 
when he writes about this conflict that he has. He says, For I know what the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold in the slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. And later on, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And we'll return to the latter part later. But the Apostle Paul is able to articulate what is true for all of us. That is consistent as we want to be for as much as we are uncomfortable with what we call dissonance, with contradictory thoughts and behaviors and words and behaviors, you would not be a living, breathing person and I would not be a living, breathing person if that were not happening constantly. If that weren't the case, Ben and Jerry's wouldn't be a problem for me. If that weren't the case, all the things that you have tried to stop or start, they'd be no big deal. If that weren't the case, this world would look pretty darn wonderful because everyone could say, I want peace and love for all. And then people would live like that Hallmark movie and the Beatles song, all you need is love would just work, right? You wouldn't need anything else if we were just able to say, this is what I want and this is what will happen. Now, pause again. This isn't to dismiss the significance of pursuing consistency. That's not what this is. But again, if I gave you a sermon where I just told you over and over, the goal is for you to say it and then do it, you'd probably leave a little bit frustrated because that's not happening all the time. Let's move a little further. Pam, would you take us to the slide after that next one, the pause and dismissing? Let's move to this latter part of our message where we can take steps based off of what perhaps we have seen. And this is where we're going to get into some scripture that might feel a little bit uncomfortable for us, but perhaps... Something might change if you and I were to start accepting what is uncomfortable in an effort to learn a new way forward. If we're to do something different than just stop that or see that, maybe Scripture can help us navigate a little bit more. So here is your next fill in the blank. We can miss that the Bible preserves uncomfortable truth about real humans. When's the last time you looked at your Bible and said, part of what Scripture does, part of what the Word and the words of God does is preserve uncomfortable truth about real human beings. I'm not sure. I can't speak it for you. But I'm going to look at some of our favorite individuals who contributed many wonderful, wonderful things that I'm so, so grateful for. But I want us to see the ways that what I was just sharing is happening to these people as well. Several years ago, we were in a series, we were teaching through the Psalms. 
picking psalms in the summer, and I got to share from Psalm 139. Look at how David writes in Psalm 139. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Later on, how weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to an end. I am still with you. And see how his song moves. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak to you of you maliciously and lift themselves up against your evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. I heard a little chuckle out there, and I'm okay with that. This was their worship music, mind you. That's what the Psalms were. These were songs that they sang. I would like you imagine, like you to imagine a Sunday morning where our wonderful worship team proceeds to have you sing these words, Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O oh God. And some of you would be like, Yes, please. Yes, please. That person who just cut me off, yes, Lord. Yes, the earth could do without their driving, Lord. Yet, I know most of us would feel a little bit uncomfortable, and yet what's really scary is that in a group this large, if enough people did it, you'd probably start seeing it too. But that's a whole other discussion. It would be wild if we were singing those songs. But they are here, and I'm so glad that Scripture preserves these words of David. But there are things in his life that change the way that he writes, that change how he goes about penning and singing. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we have this scene where David still has this intensity that God would slay the wicked, that he hates these people who are doing wrong. In verse 5, it says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And then in verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. And he talks about how he did this for him. But you, David, are the man. And if you're not sure what happened in that scene, there's a lot of sadness there. We don't have all the time to go over what that is. But King David sees this woman who he desires from his palace, Bathsheba, and he takes him for himself. And then he takes the husband of this woman, and sends this man to the front lines of battle so that he would be killed and he can have this woman. And mind you, Scripture records that David has seven, potentially eight wives. And so this isn't just the one. In either way, it's, it's really twisted. There's no way around it. It's incredibly, incredibly disturbing. Look at how David writes after this confrontation 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Later on, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. See the difference about how David is singing and writing? The job here isn't to try and judge where the state of his heart is. Because I'm incredibly grateful for all that exists there. You see, it would be ironic if in this moment, after this message and this see that, I was just saying, look at how terrible of a person David is when I am trying to have us see uncomfortably that all of us in some way embody this. The dysfunction keeps going. David and Bathsheba have a second son named Solomon. And if you saw the e-blast, you saw that the Lord wanted Solomon to be named Jedediah, which means loved by the Lord. And I shared that my parents almost named me Jedediah, and I'm really glad that they didn't. But when we think about the life of Solomon, we are accustomed to hearing that he was this incredibly wise, wise man. And although there are lots of things about that that are true, have any of you looked at his life a little bit more closely? Have any of you seen the ways that even though he pens hundreds, and Scripture says even thousands of Proverbs, wise sayings, that his life did not look very wise? anyone? It's so easy to extract and say, this is what wisdom looks like, but it's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? I'd encourage you, if you haven't read the book of Ecclesiastes before and thought about the contradictory nature of your humanness and what it looks like for Solomon, read it this week and just see what looks like mental illness. It's like, it's just so flip-floppy and turny, and then I realize, oh yeah, because mentally all of us are sick in some way, and we see it here. Look at what Solomon writes. In light of the fact, mind you, in light of the fact that he's said many wise things and he's done very, very differently. In my vain life, I've seen everything there are righteous people who perish in their righteousness, and there are wicked people who prolong their life in evil doing. So do not be too righteous, and do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be too wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of the one without letting go of the other, for the one who fears God shall succeed with both. Later on, he says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and deep, very deep, who can find it? I turned my mind to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the sum of things and to know that wickedness is folly and that foolishness is madness. And look at what he writes here. I found more bitter than death the woman who is a trap 
whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. One who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. My friends, can we acknowledge something about our boy Solomon? He was blaming here. He was blaming some woman. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Self-control? Blame? My friend, you're going to tell me that you don't know what it is that you're doing necessarily. In other parts, you're going to pursue all the pleasures of the world, and then you're going to remind us that someone else was a snare and trap for you? I'm so glad that Scripture preserves this because we are all inclined in this way. We're just reading what is here for us. And as hard as it might sound, when we look at ourselves and we look at other people, it really is just par for the lovely course that we're on. I'm going to close out with another example here from the Apostle Paul. And if this doesn't make it any clearer in a way that isn't as drastic as some of those things, because I imagine that most of us aren't caught up in the schemes of David and Solomon. <laughs> but look at the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth. It's noted as his second one, but we know that it, at the very least, is his third one. And he writes to them as he has been hearing that there are these super apostles that are trying to undermine him. And it starts to get him upset. And Paul writes in chapter 11, verse 3, I think that I am not in the least in fear to these super apostles. Okay, he's saying, these dudes need to back off. Okay, I've got my stuff down. I can handle, okay? I can embody that. Can you guys see that? And look what he writes later on. In verse 12, and what I do, I will also continue to do in order to deny an opportunity to those who want opportunity to be recognized as our equals, what they boast about. For such boasters are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is not strange if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. Their end will match their deeds. Do you see that the Apostle Paul is really worked up here? He's upset. He's upset. I repeat, let no one think that I am a fool. But if you do, then accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. Now catch this, my friends. It's right here. What I'm saying in this regard to this boastful confidence, I'm saying not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to human standards, I also will boast. For you gladly put up with fools, being wise yourselves. Do you see his sarcasm and his anger? Oh, it's coming out. This is about as intense as it gets. He continues by writing. For you put up when someone makes slaves of you, or preys upon you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or gives you a slap in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that, but here, but whatever anyone dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. 
Are they ministers of Christ? I am talking like a madman. I am a better one. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings and often near death. And then he lists off all of these ways that he is not inferior to those guys. And then we see that blame part at the very end in good old human fashion. Chapter 12, verses 11. I've been a fool. You forced me to it. Indeed, you should have been the ones commending me, for I am not at all in fear to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. My friends, he said it himself. His boasting, his foolishness, that was not of the Lord. And you and I can all talk that way, and I know what it's like. Trust me, I've got that in me. You hear that tone in my voice that you heard me read the scripture out of? When I'm at my very worst, that's actually what I sound like. When I get really, really angry, that's the cockiness that comes out. And it's scary that it's there, but it is there. So here's how we start to move. We can move from being stuck by confessing what is also true about us. You and I can pretend that these things are not in there, but they are. And that's why Paul is able at that long section of inner conflict earlier was able to say, what wretched person I am who will save me from this body of death in Romans chapter 7, verse 24 through 25. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's placing the credit outside of himself because it is not going to come from him. But can I show you why I think more than just recognizing our inner turmoil, Peter put self-control on the back end of knowledge and knowing? If you haven't, you can go back and listen to our previous messages online. There is an intentionality to why Peter would write that self-control comes after knowledge. And you look at this scene with Jesus speaking to his contemporaries. In verse 31 of chapter 8, he says, Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, my learners, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you freer. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You've heard that perhaps before. And they answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. It's really easy to miss the emphasis of these words because I am selfishly oriented. I want to make this about me. We want to make this about us. They wanted to make it about them and their rightful place. Jesus says anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And that should make it sound pretty hopeless for us. However, he continues by putting emphasis on himself. If the Son sets you free, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. And that's why we begin with faith. Do you believe? 
Do you actually believe that the Son could set you free? Do you actually believe that you can be freed even though your contradictory sinful nature continues to wage war within yourself, even though your behaviors and your actions and your thoughts do not just quickly, quickly change? This process toward becoming like the one who sets us free and our frustration with ourselves and our frustration with other people and our propensity to look at the world and wonder how in the heck is this going to happen comes from us not remembering something is here and if i don't acknowledge that how can things be different So let's start cruising through the final end. Self-control is a humbling conviction because we're acknowledging that others are free to choose. Self-control is a humbling conviction because we are acknowledging that others are free to choose. In other words, if you believe that this message would end where it started, where we could just say stop that or see that, it can't. We know self-restraint and consistency are important, but others are free to choose. And as difficult as that might be for us to acknowledge, it's what's happening. It's just the way that it is. Look at the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Galatians in chapter 5. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, verse 13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. He continues saying, live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. What the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, if you don't see yourself there, all the other things that are like it, you're in there. I am warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that sounds really, really scary if you forget that if your thinking is that you're the one that is going to bring yourself into the kingdom and not the Son, well, yeah, you will miss it. So by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. You realize a few times that Paul talks about our envy and how we see others? Oftentimes, when we are working really hard not to do those things, we will get more frustrated as we see people around us doing what we assume is whatever they want, even though we don't know what their internal battle is. But that tends to be what happens for us. 
And even though this seems very clear, like a don't do that and do this instead, chronologically, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Galatia years before he was able to admit in Romans chapter 7 what was at war within him. It took the Apostle Paul years to write anything of that sort. His letter to the churches in Corinth earlier on in his ministry, we see this. And yet his ability later in life to acknowledge what wars within him and direct his wretchedness toward God speaks to the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. So here's your next one in the blank. We're almost done, friends. Self-control is a shift from feeling external pressure because we seek to steward internal purpose. That's what's happening. You see, if you look at your scripture from Old Testament to New Testament, you will see that the motivation primarily early on was external. It was this law that was outside of them that they were supposed to follow. They were supposed to be motivated enough by this law and the fear that if they did not do these things, that they were going to be destroyed. But the transition, grace through faith in Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit takes this thing that is external and brings it internal. You will hear people say that Christians are weak because they have a poor locus of control that is only external. People might say that Christians only believe that there's a God out there that's directing their lives, and so they're just waiting for something to happen. And there are individuals like that who are Christian or not Christian. Some of us are just waiting for things to happen. But the good Lord decided it wouldn't just be his presence beyond, but his presence inside that there would be something compelling us, not just externally, but internally as well, so that, so that our desires would change simultaneously with our decision to act differently. It's happening simultaneously, my friends. We can't have a message on self-control and not emphasize that, of course, there's so much effort and work in doing. There's so much But if the reality is that we are new creation, we see that so much around us doesn't look new, then it is saying the opportunity is for us to live as new creation. It is a beautiful, wonderful thing when you and I choose to submit to new creation. I'd like to invite the band up. And as the band is coming up and we think about this external move internally that would compel us to then start to look differently. I want to share just a little bit about what happened this morning that was so, so cute to me, because I've been going for a while, and I'm seeing your faces wondering, what just happened? This morning, as our worship team was preparing, I was here at the very end of our rehearsal, and I came into this middle section here right by where Todd and Todd, T. Hunt and Todd, you guys were both named Todd, you're right there. Andrew and Raylan were sitting right over there, and I came over to say hi to Drew. Uh, That's his wife, Stephanie. That's their new baby over there. She's so cute. And Raylan was sitting upright, and she was playing with this big, just big water bottle, sitting upright, looking all strong and pushing this thing off and playing. As I interacted with them, suddenly Luke's daughter, Addie, and his son, Nate, came over and 
baby Caitlin is sick with mom Steffi, but they, they came over to that section and Addie was saying, Mr. Jed, Mr. Jed, oh, I just think babies are so cute. And I said, I know, Addie, I know, aren't they? And they said, hey, uh, brother and I, we just jumped off of the stairs. We just jumped off the stairs all on our own. Oh, my word. And I wanted to say, Addie, thank you for helping me finish the sermon today. <laughs> There's something about feeling a sense inside of you and just... And there are a lot of us like, oh, no, 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 all the writing reflexes. Don't let Addie jump off of the stage with her brother Nate. But there's something beautiful about that. And each and every single one of you, I don't care where you are at this point in life, you all started that way. You did. You did. You did. You did. You did. God wired you and designed you to be compelled to use the body that you got to move and to be and to do. And at some point, we start thinking everything that we have was derived from us or everything that we have was just given to us. No, something is happening at the same time. There's stuff outside of us and stuff inside of us. God is beyond and God is within. And when Addie and her brother Nate are jumping off that stage, being free and moving and not being scared, that is actually a level of self-control. There's a self-control that happens when we say, I get to choose to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it does not mean that I am going to get all of this right or perfectly. But what it looks like is instead of me looking at little brother Nate and saying, Nate, 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 don't, 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 don't do that, Nate. It's like, uh, let's jump together. Let's move together. We said that this series was about having a vibrancy to our faith. Is there anything more vibrant than a little brother and a little sister jumping off the stage together? Is there anything more vibrant that you can remember in this series than a little brother and a little sister jumping off a stage together? Sanders Community Church, we call this a church family. You have brothers and sisters all across this room that may have been stuck in a stop that mentality or a see that mentality, but what about a, hey, can we revel in the goodness of Abba Father who created us to live and move and breathe and find our being and life abundant in him? And would we be people who aren't just trying to stop ourselves from doing things? Would we be people who are compelled by the Spirit of God to go out into our world outside of this building and here in this building and all the places that you get to occupy your places of work or your family or your sports teams or your schools wherever you find yourself would you remember that you have brothers and sisters in a family who want to be free and can see that the son has freed us would you stand and join us and worship through song Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.